We're going to open our Bibles now uh, for this morning's reading, which is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And if you're reading from your church Bible, it's on page 1147. Let's just pray before we read. Father God, help our eyes to focus on your word as we read along, our ears to listen carefully to what your word is saying, and our minds to be challenged by its application for us as your church this morning. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8, Lawsuits Among Believers. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about, about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is no is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Carly, <coughs> Martin, Nikki, thank you very much <coughs> for your help there. I must say, it's, it's getting quite warm in the church, isn't it? So if you want to just have a little bit of stretch out whilst I um, get myself together, then please feel free to. If you hear me cough loudly, it's because I've seen someone going to sleep. And if I go to sleep, we're in real trouble, aren't we? <laughs> you know, in getting on for 30 years in the ministry, I've found that uh, one of the hardest things to preach on is unity. You know, you don't want people to feel that you stood there self-righteously judging them. Um, you don't want people to take their bat home or anything like that. So bear with me and pray with me as I lead you through this passage. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Enlighten us today with the truth of your word in the power of the Holy Spirit that we might consider biblically the importance of church unity, and the rights we seek to assert, which can detract from that. Let the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Amen. Let's see what we can take from this passage. The first thing, take the challenge to the church in Corinth. So take the challenge to the church in Corinth. 
to understand what was happening in the church, it's helpful to know something about Corinthian society generally. And we've heard a few things over the weeks as we have studied from 1 Corinthians. But the uh, Corinthian culture in St. Paul's time, amongst other things, was very litigious. There are several possible reasons for this and some of the factors that contributed to the litigiousness of Corinthian society were that Corinth um, was highly developed, sophisticated, they had a, a good uh, law system and um, it, they had felt they had the rights to sue and be sued in courts of law. And in fact, many disputes were settled through legal procedures. So that that's, was the background, really. Uh, co commerce was a big thing there. Um, commerce often involved contracts, debts, loans, and other legal matters. And some of the traders may have resorted to litigation to protect their own interests or enforce their agreements. And the Corinthian people generally loved their arguments because those were opportunities to showcase their rhetorical skills, which helped them to see who could put the best case forward and the most elaborate argument to win their case. Corinth was also a place with different groups competing for status and influence. And litigation may have been a way for some people to assert their rights, challenge their rivals, or display their wealth and power. And Paul encountered some of these divisions among the Corinthian Christians. They formed factions, as we know and we've read, um, and they had the allegiance to different leaders or teachers, which led to problems in the church. But it was, as well, a place of moral challenge and temptation for the followers of Christ. The city, as we've heard, was notorious for its sexual immorality and idolatry. And Paul urged the Corinthians to live holy lives. And this passage about disputes and living by kingdom values in relation to um, each other, in relation to people outside the church as well, um, was actually sandwiched uh, between issues dealing with sexual immorality. The call upon them, of course, was that they would honour God, which would distinguish them from the surrounding culture. They were asked to judge uh, those who are living lives that weren't pleasing to God. They were called to do so. And what a call. Take the concerned apostle. Let's bear in mind that the scriptures... Um, hadn't been formed into the Bible at that time. This was a, a letter that was written by Paul to the church in Corinth. But the issues it raises have lots of implications for the church throughout the ages. For Emmanuel, for you, and for I. And although it was a letter, you can almost hear Paul's righteous anger expressed very strongly. <clears throat> 6 1. If any of you has a dispute, dare he take it before the ungodly? 6 2. Do you not know? Are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Therefore, if. 6 4. 
6.5, I say this to shame you. 6.5, is it possible? 6.6, six, six. but instead, 6.7, the very fact that, 6.7 again, why not rather, and 6.8, instead, you yourselves. He continues in that sort of tone as the uh, passage goes on. We won't be studying the following verses. So what, what's going on here? I mean, think about the Corinthian church. Uh, some people have estimated that there was between 40 and 150 people there. Um, I'm not sure of the numbers. Other people estimate more. The suggestion is that the church would often meet in people's homes as well as a pattern often was. And I know in one place in the Bible, Paul talks about Gaius offering hospitality to him and to the whole church. So we don't know for certain how large the church was, but we know for Emmanuel that if someone was in dispute with someone else, which led to court action perhaps, then it would send ripples and cast a shadow over the church. So here we are in 1 Corinthians, in 6, uh, chapter, uh, verse 1. Paul writes, if any of you has a dispute with another. He wasn't implying at all that everyone was in dispute, but he was implying that some were. And this was not congruent with their Christian faith. And they would have known it. Psalm 133 and verse 1, for example, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. The psalm goes on to say in verse 4, for there the Lord bestows his blessing. Paul himself, as we know, had already addressed the matter earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought can't get clearer than that can you where did he get that idea well jesus said it's recorded in john's gospel a new command i give you love one another as i have loved you so you must love one another by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Well, where's the place for public disputes in that? See, the problem is, when we're in dispute with another in the church, there is a breakdown of love between each other. And often within the church, people feel that they ought to be uh, taking sides, you know, getting involved in some way. And we know that the Corinthian church was already divided and in dispute on several issues. What does that do? As we've learned so much recently from the ways in which churches have been divided over leadership issues, over leadership sins, over leadership falls from grace, we know that it weakens the witness of the church in a needy world. It weakens our witness too. And it weakens the witness of our brothers and sisters in Christ as people begin to point the finger at us and lump us in with those whom they might call hypocrites. Thirdly, take the 
Christian's inheritance. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? What's Paul saying here? Judging the world and angels can refer to the authority and responsibility that Christians will have in the end times. When Christ will return, he'll establish his reign over all things. And the righteous redeemed will reign with him. Judging angels may mean either condemning the fallen angels who rebelled against God or ruling over the holy angels who serve God. That's something for future sermons, I'm sure, and I hope they don't ask me to do it. However you may interpret it, if the Christians have such a, a promised future, why on earth can they not judge more trivial cases? And the Corinthian church seemed unable to make the link between living for Christ in the present and the future glory held out for them, if they knew that at all. You and I have a high calling, a guaranteed future, if you're his, and a participation in God's eternal purposes. And such a high calling should make us wise, should make us committed to living out the gospel in our everyday relationships with each other, in the here and now. 6.5 makes the point, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Maybe that's a, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, although a real challenge as well, because later on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul teaches, now you are the body of Christ, and each of you has a part in it. If there's a work to be done in uniting the church, then it's all our responsibility. There's no one who hasn't been redeemed, recreated, who doesn't have a place in serving in the body of Christ. Of course, there was someone wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. I pray that's not even a, a role that's necessary in this church, but if it were needed, we don't lack any of the gifts to deal with it. It's the willingness to deal with it that was the issue in the Corinthian church. The question is, were they willing or were they so accommodating to sin that no one offered? No one had the conscience to do anything about it. Or was it such a lack of understanding of God's word that they didn't even see the necessity for it? We've had all these takes so far. Don't take the unbeliever. First Corinthians and chapter 6 and verse 6. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. A terrible thing. Don't take the non-believer to make your decisions for you. Have no truck with those things. You might have heard uh, the story, I guess, as a lady on a plane, and she's looking out of the window, and the blue sky, beautiful blue sky, and white fluffy clouds uh, floating by, and the 
the earth many, many um, feet below her. And as she's looking out of the window, someone wearing a parachute appears on the other side of the window, so on the outside, and knocks on the window. I just did that to wake some up, by the way. <laughs> knocks on the window and says, will you come and join me? <laughs> no way, says uh, the woman, the passenger. Suit yourself, says the person on the outside with the parachute, ready to go. But I'm the pilot. <laughs> I guess that passenger felt she knew the outcome of that judgment that she'd made. But that wasn't what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were resorting to godless judges. And who knows what the outcome of those judgments would be. They were operating to a godless script. So to someone who had a very different worldview. So I need to ask, what's your script? Who are you taking your guidance and direction from? Because if it's not from God's word and within his will and purposes, then you're in grave danger. Grave danger of being led astray. Don't be judged by the world. Don't listen to the world and its agenda. It's not yours. You are God's. But... The very fact, says Paul, that you have lawsuits among you means you've completely been defeated already. Going to court, being in dispute with someone over a matter which should have been resolved in God's way, in love, forgiveness, with discipline, with unity on your heart. Maybe that you win the case, but you're already defeated through lack of forgiveness, lack of integrity, lack of care for your brother or sister, lack of love for God, lack of love for the church, lack of living as God's redeemed people. Pride in yourself rather than humility before God and his people. Speaking about disputes, the Christian author and theologian Eric Raymond writes, in the context of arguments, I found that pride is like gas on fire, whilst humility is like a bucket of water. Pride is an accelerant, while humility is an extinguisher. So pursue humility through listening, understanding, self-control and peacemaking. Because in the end, it doesn't matter how right you are, when you are acting wrongly. Many arguments could be avoided if we remembered an elusive truth. We can be right and wrong simultaneously. Or, as Paul puts it, and I read it once again, the very fact that you've lawsuits among you, among you means you've been completely defeated already. Paul goes on to make an audacious challenge. Take the hit. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? It's there in verse 7. That's turning the Corinthian church's attitude right on its head. 
But how hard is it to take that attitude? It would be better to accept wrong. It would be better to let yourselves be cheated than to defend your rights at the expense of God's glory and the higher good of his kingdom and unity in the church. How are you doing on that one? That's hard, isn't it? How would you do on that one? Because that's love in action. That's love for God in action. That's love for our brothers and sisters in action. And this is faithful obedience to Jesus who says, you've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Hand over your coat as well. You see, your right is not more important than following God, than the unity of the church. There's a calling upon the Christian, you and I, to live counterculturally, counterintuitively for the sake of the gospel. There's a call upon the Christian to treat our brothers and sisters with a love that sometimes seems undeserving. There's a call upon the Christian to be a faithful witness to the world by our actions as much as by our words. That's hard. It was hard for the Corinthian church. It's hard for us too. But take the hit. And you can know that we're not alone. God sends his spirit to empower and help us. He's our comforter, helper, our guide. 2 Timothy chapter 1 says, For the spirit God gives, gives us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. We need those things to maintain the unity of the church. For those who are younger amongst us, that does mean that in a situation where it's tough to live as a Christian, and I understand that often it is, or when we feel wrongly judged by others, we need to be prepared to take the hit. And it's hard to do so, of course, because we want to hit back. But we need to know, too, that God will be our strength, our provider, and our sustainer as we do it. It's a lesson for us all, as well, to love beyond duty, to serve God beyond our abilities, to trust God to empower and enable us to live for him, to refuse to allow sin and godless ways to have a hold in our church and in our own lives. Often, the Corinthian people, in the Corinthian church, didn't get involved in condemning sin, sexual immorality. In fact, some of those were involved in that themselves. Take the hit. Let's remember that Christ took the hit for us. Dying on the cross for sins he never committed. Willingly going all that way that we might be forgiven. Forgiven of our sins and redeemed. I don't want this message today to sound harsh or judging, but rather something that would unite us 
the way that Paul would have liked to have happened in the Corinthian church. But there's something I do want to say. If you're here today and haven't tasted of the loving forgiveness of God and are living by an agenda that's not God's, then you need to come to know Jesus Christ. You need to confess any wrongdoing and acknowledge him as Lord of your life. He's not going to come down on you like a heavy judge. He comes in justice. He comes in love. He comes in mercy. He comes with forgiveness. He welcomes you with open arms. Hey, how's that for unity? What can we take away? Get it right. Put it right with someone who's wronged you or whom you have wronged. There's no place in the church for such wrong attitudes. Put right broken relationships with others, even with people in the church, because it does happen in churches. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't even needed to have addressed the issue. It can happen in churches today. Put that right, because it affects the unity of the church. Those ripples move out to other people. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be redeemed. We're supposed to be transformed. We're supposed to be renewed. Take the hit. Even this week when you feel done down by a friend, a neighbour, colleague. In by someone you trusted. Take the hit. Strive for unity. Take the hit for the glory of God and for the witness of the church to the world. Take the hit out of obedience to God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What can I do to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? What can Emmanuel do to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? I'm not asking you to pass wrong judgments, but we're all sometimes guilty of doing those things. Let's pray. Move our hearts, Lord, with the peace of your Spirit as we care for ourselves and for the church. Lift our minds with your wisdom to act responsibly and peacefully for everyone's benefit. Bind your people together in love, in the unity of the spirit, in the bond of peace. And so hear this as we pray. Amen. Time to wake up. We're going to say words of confession uh, now. Um, and I can probably see them on the television at the back there. So say with me. We confess, triune God, that we do not live up to your call to lead a life worthy of our calling. We are slow to show humility, gentleness and patience. We make little effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. We have chosen our way above your way. 
we have chosen our opinions over the unity of your church. You are three in one and one in three. All too often, we are every man and woman for ourselves. We come before you aware of our own selfish pride. We need the grace you give us when we ask. Thank you for being above all and through all and in all. Forgive us where we have gone astray and lead us to true repentance that we may be swift to run from those things that are displeasing to you, but rather to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love and endurance. Help us to forgive those who have hurt us and grant us your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God is forgiving, he is just and full of grace. Ephesians remind us we've been set free because of what Christ has done. Through his blood, our sins have been forgiven. We've been set free because God's grace is so rich. He poured his grace on us by giving us great wisdom and understanding. Understanding. Use it in the service of the church, I pray. Carly. <laughs>